Welcome to the Dr. Gabrielle Lyon Show, where I believe a healthy world is based on transparent conversations. I'm very excited to bring you this special episode of the Dr. Gabrielle Lyon Show, in which I sit down with Dr. Scott Smith, who leads the Nutritional Biochemistry Lab at NASA Johnson Space Center. This group is charged with keeping crews healthy with respect to nutrition, including nutrition to optimize astronaut health and safety. This work includes ground-based and space flight research to understand how nutrition can mitigate the risks of space flight. Smith has ongoing research projects on the International Space Station. His past projects have been flown on the space station, space shuttle, and the Russian space station. Smith has also led several ground-based research projects to the bottom of the ocean, not to mention studies of vitamin D in crews in Antarctica. Smith is a member of the American Society for Nutrition, the American Physiological Society, and a whole bunch more. He is one amazing individual. I found this episode really, really interesting. We talked all about the biomarkers measured in an astronaut. What are the biomarkers that we see that vary from space to Earth? Oxidative stress that the astronaut will face. What are the nutritional strategies that one can use to mitigate this? What are the implications of vitamins and minerals, particularly vitamin D, as it relates to immune function, both in space and on Earth? We talk all about the nutritional needs of the astronaut, as well as the nutritional needs of the Earth-bound human. I hope you like this episode. Again, it was such an honor to talk with Dr. Scott Smith. Please take a moment to rate, subscribe, share it. There's always something that we can learn. Thank you so much for listening. This episode is brought to you by Element, pronounced Element, but spelled L-M-N-T. I love Element. It is an electrolyte, scientifically backed little tiny packet of gold. If you are sweating a lot, which you should be because you are training, Element is a electrolyte solution with a thousand milligrams of sodium, 200 milligrams of potassium and 60 milligrams of magnesium. It is a household favorite around here. It doesn't have any junk in it, no sugar, no coloring, no artificial ingredients. Element is formulated to help anyone and everybody with their electrolyte needs. If you are hot and sweaty, you need it. If you're getting headaches and really tired, potentially you're dehydrated, having muscle cramps, whether you're on a keto diet, low-carb diet, paleo diet, potentially even the air diet. This is a great formula for you. I've been using Element for a long time now. Thank you, Rob. Right now, Element is offering my listeners a free sample pack with any order that's eight flavors. All you have to do is go to drinkelement.com slash Dr. Lion. That's drinkelement.com slash Dr. Lion and you will get a no questions asked refund if you do not like it, but I know that you will. Thank you to Cozy Health for sponsoring this episode of the show. I love Cozy Health. I have been using their products for the last two years, and I will tell you this, 
Cozy device red light panels are the best. They are built to be EMF free from a distance of four inches. Red light or photobiomodulation is running alongside as the next up and coming thing. It's actually been around for a while, but red light therapy, heat therapy, cold plunge, these things are all environmental levers that you can pull. I love Cozy Health. I love their red light panel. Their devices are very transparent. There's a red at 660 nanometers and a near infrared at 850 nanometers. It is great for recovery, for mental health, for hair, for skin. They also make light bulbs, day and night light bulbs. We use them all over the house. You really have to leverage your environment if you want optimal health. Not to mention, the final thing I will tell you is their customer service is phenomenal. Everything is backed by a 60-day money-back guarantee. Cozy Red Light is offering our listeners 10% off your first order. Go to CozyHealth.com slash DrLion and use the code DrLion at checkout. Scott Smith, although I would love to call you Dr. Scott Smith, tell me, what do you do for NASA? Um, I'm, I'm a nutritionist, and I lead the nutritional biochemistry lab here at the Johnson Space Center. Do people often make jokes about Houston having a problem? Um, occasionally. <laughs> only, only really bad jokes. Uh, thank you so much for taking the time to be on the show. I'm really excited to interview you and hear all about some of the potential changes that happen in space. And please correct me if I'm wrong. You did a wonderful review in Cell Press in 2020. And it stated that a principal goal of NASA, which is National Aeronautics and Space Administration, has historically been to expand scientific knowledge for humankind's benefit. And this includes a greater understanding of the universe, as well as repurposing space-relevant research to advance science and technology on Earth. Indeed, and that, that's in the macroscopic level. Um, again, I, the knothole I look at it is, is nutrition. And in short, how do we keep astronauts healthy from a nutrition point of view to, to allow mission success? Um, and that is a very noble endeavor. I'm sure keeping astronauts healthy is not an easy task. I am so interested in, by the way, you're very well published. Thank you for that. I'm so interested in, in particular, the potential of a genetic profile, the genetic profile of an astronaut as it relates to having challenges, for example, ocular issues, or potentially you could lay out a handful of challenges that the astronaut is going to encounter, and then the genetic predisposition that is going to potentially worsen that problem. Indeed, and, you know, spaceflight is pretty hard on the human body, and we see changes in almost every system. So we see bone loss, we see muscle loss, we see cardiovascular changes, we see immune changes, we found you know, changes in astronauts' eyes, you name it, all sorts of things. And nutrition, being a cross-cutting science, touches many of those things, and for most of those cases, or almost all those cases, I wouldn't, I wouldn't presume to tell you that we could, if we just fed them the right thing, 
none of those changes would occur. Um, it's, it's not that simple. But what we know is that nutrition plays a significant role in disease risk on Earth and on human adaptation in any environment. And by feeding the right things or the wrong things, we can make the risk of those, of those pathologies better or worse. And what we found with the, with the ocular changes is, is probably the most striking thing I've ever seen. Um, around 12 to 14 years ago, we realized that some astronauts were coming back with changes in their eyes. And there's some nuance to it, but in simple terms that I understand, we had some people that went up with perfect vision and came back and needed glasses and still do five, six, seven years later. And there's a very long story behind this and about 12 years of work, but we found differences in the blood chemistry of the astronauts that developed those eye problems. And we found differences in their, in their blood chemistries before flight. And we did some research. We followed up on that. We, we did a lot of, we did a lot of work. Um, and found that some astronauts are genetically predisposed to develop ocular problems during spaceflight. And that specifically the genetics are affecting one of the biochemical pathways in the body that involves B vitamin metabolism. So things like folate and B12 and B6 and riboflavin. And what, what we're about to test is whether or not we can give supplements to overcome that genetic effect to prevent at-risk astronauts from developing this problem. That's so fascinating. And what you're referring to is a homocysteine level. And I'm curious, yep. I, I'm sure that there's a whole host of biomarkers, but you're exactly right. I found it very fascinating that these vision changes uh, pre-flight were much different than post-flight. And again, it's so profound that you were able to identify this pathway of uh, one carbon metabolism as it relates to homocysteine, because as a physician in my practice, we test homocysteine routinely. And I'm curious as to, did you find a common polymorphism? Was there a certain gene mutation? How high was their homocysteine? And as it relates to homocysteine, as it relates to folate, were there certain numbers that you saw that were um, put those individuals at risk or was it more just the mutation in and of itself? Um, those are several great questions. Let me see if I can break it down. Um, first of all, the homocysteine levels that we saw were not that high. But when we looked at, again, affected astronauts to not affected astronauts, we saw statistically significant differences. But the homocysteine levels that we were seeing were at the were were at the point where they were within normal limits. So if somebody showed up in your office and you measured the homocysteine, you you'd shrug it off. You'd say, "Well, you're at the high end of normal, but it's not a big deal." Um, the fact that they were consistently higher, um, and the fact that they were different before flight, is what led us to look at genetics. And we did a, an initial study back in 2012 where we, we picked a handful, literally five 
single nucleotide polymorphisms that we felt were were well documented to be associated with changes in homocysteine. And at the time, we were criticized by our by our friends and by the reviewers that we should be looking at hundreds of these SNPs, that we were we were going way too narrow. And our response back was, you know, this was NASA's first ever look at individual genetic data. And we weren't sure the IRB was going to approve it. We weren't sure the crew was going to go along with it. And we said, look, we'll pick our best five and, and, and hope for the best. So what came of that initial study was, um, again, we found statistically significant relationships between the genetics or the forms of those five SNPs and the incidence of these ocular issues. We then spun from that to do a, a more broad study looking at the 500 SNPs. And we're still, we're still following up on that. Um, in short, there were, there were one or two SNPs when we looked at them specifically that we were seeing um, some unique patterns. Okay. But as I often say, we didn't find a smoking gun. We didn't expect to find a smoking gun that we were ne we never expected that we'd find one SNP that would cause a problem. And we found we found a couple of SNPs we looked at. One, everybody that had the minor form of that SNP developed ocular problems. So that was pretty striking. But there were a lot of people that had ocular problems that didn't have that SNP. So again, what we think is happening is that there are, there are, again, hundreds of SNPs that impinge upon this biochemical pathway. And your specific mix of genetics at some point will lead to a tipping point where it will affect your B vitamin metabolism where it will affect your blood vessel function and nitric oxide synthesis and endothelial function. And at the point at which your blood vessels don't work as well as they could, that is somehow leading to changes in, in the eye when put in the spaceflight environment. That it really is a multiple hit phenomenon that if you have the same set of genetics here on Earth, it's it's probably not an issue. But if we were to put you in head down till bed rest, if we were to fly you in space where the fluid will will move from your lower extremities into your head, um, in with those extra triggers, that can cause these problems. That's it's a, such a fascinating thing to think of because eventually. Again, we'll, we'll probably be on other planets, and certain individuals uh, will likely tolerate that better than others. Do you know what it is about? Is it the homocysteine? Is it because of that metabolite? It, do they have a sense of, or do you guys have a sense of, what is it about space? Is it that it is creating a just a rapid change in potentially... Uh, oxi you know, oxidative capacity? Is there something particular about space? At this point, we, we simply don't know. And I don't think homocysteine in and of itself is the 
is causing the effect. Um, and, and we actually think that it's more related to um, blood vessel function, endothelial function, and again, nitric oxide synthesis. And we know that if you are folate deficient, for example, you will have endothelial dysfunction. And we think it's more related to the blood vessel function associated with the fluid shift of spaceflight that is probably causing this problem. But but that's all hypothetical. We, we really, we do not know what causes this problem. And then when the astronauts are on, on Earth, <laughs> it sounds weird saying, on Earth, do you supplement them with uh, B6, B12, and folate to lower their homocysteine? Have you looked at the implications of supplementation and if it actually lowers their, uh, their homocysteine levels? We, um, we just started an experiment where we will, we will give people a combination of B6, B12, riboflavin, folate to see if we can mitigate the eye problems during spaceflight. Our first crew member is going to launch next month. Um, we did her second set of pre-flight testing this morning. Um, and she'll be the first of 16 people that will participate in our study. And I, I have to say that NASA's, historically, NASA's been rather squeamish about genetic data. Because whenever you talk about genetics, the first question is always, well, you could use that to, to, to ground people, to select people. And it's, it, literally, it's against the law to do that. And we are by no means looking to do that. But one of the things that that does for our experiment is we will open the experiment up to the first 16 people that sign up. We will not look at their genetics before they sign up. And, and we will not base their, their participation in the study on their genetics. So I, again, I realize that that's, um, that's a very odd way of laying things out, but um, given the situation, given where we work and given the population we work with, um, those are some of the protections we have to go through to make sure that we don't accidentally out that somebody's got a certain set of genetics, mm. which obviously can have an effect on, on their family, on their, you know, on their children's disease risk and things like that. So we tend to be even more careful than, um, than in general. Yes. Yes, actually, it was uh, prior to the interview for the listener, I definitely I had to contact her team and submit a whole thing, give them a retinal scan. No, just kidding. It wasn't that bad. Um, I had a few questions regarding homocysteine. And one of the reasons I'm talking about homocysteine and MTHFR is many of the listeners, you know, in clinical practice, oftentimes people do test for uh, mutations, whether it's challenges with pregnancy or vascular risk factors. So MTHFR is something that many, well, uh, many physicians do test for. And in lowering, uh, of course, homocysteine, just a few thoughts. Have you looked at perhaps a lower methionine diet or um, a lower methionine diet, potentially um, increasing cysteine, Any anything like that? We've, we've not done either of those things. Um, again, what we think is happening is that the genetics are affecting the biochemical pathway 
And that as a result of that, or as an artifact of that, homocysteine concentrations are a little bit higher. Again, I don't know for sure, but based on our data, I, I do not think that homocysteine in and of itself is the, the bad actor, if you will. So if we could magically, you know, suck all the homocysteine out, if we could magically remove all the homocysteine from the blood, I don't think that would change the, the overall situation. I think it's more complex than that. So I, we, we have not looked at other ways to lower homocysteine because, I, A, I don't think that's the problem. And B, I think if by giving the vitamins in and of themselves, um, that that's, we think that's going to fix the issue. Hmm. That's interesting. What about uh, aspects of oxidative stress? Um, and how do you uh, recreate those environments before sending them off to space? Do you look at ways that there's an increase in oxidative stress, for example, lower vitamin D levels, impaired immunity? What are some of the things that you impart on the astronauts or potentially these control groups? And what are some of the implications? Well, oxidative stress is, is, a, is a serious concern, and that's one of the things that, that we worry about quite a bit. Um, not only because of the typical spacecraft environment, but um, secondary to radiation exposure, which in low Earth orbit, where the space station is, um, they get significantly higher radiation doses than on Earth. But as we're looking at missions to go back to the moon, as we look long-term at missions to go to Mars, um, the radiation profile gets even greater the further away you get from Earth. And again, I can't argue that diet alone is going to protect against that, but we know that dietary components, things like fruits and vegetables, sources of flavonoids and lycopene and, and other antioxidants can help to, to mitigate that, if not prevent it, um, period. One of the things that we're always looking for ways to simulate aspects of spaceflight here on Earth. Spaceflight research is always very exciting and, and nothing beats doing research with astronauts on board space station. Um, but the reality is it's very challenging to do those studies. The, the amount of time you have, the subjects you have, the, the nature of the studies is very constrained. So we're always looking for ways on Earth that we can mimic elements of that. So if we want to look at bone loss or muscle loss or eye changes, we put people to bed for a month or two or three. And we can look at changes in those systems there. When we wanted to look at oxidative stress, one of the things we've done is we piggybacked on some studies that were being done at a habitat off the coast of Florida that is about 50 feet below the surface of the ocean and crews that were living there for about two weeks. Um, we did studies looking at changes again in vitamin metabolism, changes in iron metabolism and red blood cell metabolism. When we wanted to look at vitamin D and how much vitamin D to give to, to astronauts that don't see the sun for six months, we did studies in Antarctica where the sun doesn't come up for six months. And we're actually doing two follow-up studies on that right now, um, working with colleagues in Europe and colleagues in the immune lab here, looking at the impact of Antarctic isolation and stress 
on immune system function and the ability of, of diet and nutrition uh, to help mitigate some of those stresses. So there's a lot of there's a lot of different analogs that we use depending on what it is we're trying to study. None of them are perfect, um, but they're all very valuable in, in their own way and contribute not only to our understanding of, of elements of how things change during spaceflight, but they often have implications for people here on Earth. Are there particular biomarkers that you look at for oxidative stress when uh, individuals are underwater? Um, there's a number of things we look at. We'll look at uh, total antioxidant capacity. We'll look at uh, PG, uh, PGF2 alpha in the urine, which is a, an oxidative stress marker. We'll look at 8-hydroxydeoxyguanosine, which is a DNA damage marker. Um, we'll look at vitamins like vitamin E. We'll look at glutathione um, and other nutrients. We do, depending on the study, um, we do a pretty wide swath of biochemistry trying to understand um, as many as many factors as we can. And one of the ways that we overcome the fact that we can't do what I would call epidemiological grade studies, we study a very small number of individuals typically, but we look at a large number of, of markers. And what that does is it gives you confidence. If you're seeing three, four, five, six different markers show the same patterns, even though you only have 10 or 12 subjects, it, it allows you to make inferences on, on the overall situation of what's going on. And are you able to supplement, for example, if someone has low glutathione status, are you, are you able to offer that to the astronauts? Or do they all have uh, different individual protocols? Um, we, do, we do a nutritional assessment workup on, on the space station crew members. And we will work with them. We'll work with our flight surgeons. Um, we evaluate their nutritional status twice before flight, once around 18 months before flight and once about three months before flight. And we will make recommendations to the flight surgeon of here's what their data are, here's what we think, and, and here's what we would, would recommend. So indeed. Would you say that um, it's very conservative in terms of what um – you would be able to prescribe or offer, whether it's supplementation, you know, because the, the supplement landscape is always changing, right? There are new things. So for example, there's a compound urolithin A with a gut microbiome. It's been studied for 20 years or so, and it's now just making it to more of the mainstream, which obviously is not your population, but we're seeing human studies. And obviously those it's validated in animals first and then, um, and then brought to the public. Do, uh, is there challenges? Are there challenges bringing new supplementation to the astronaut, to this population? Maybe something that you find very valuable, but perhaps isn't enough data behind it yet. We absolutely we we are we are probably considered extremely conservative, and the number of emails I get of people with suggestions of. Um, of, of this week's supplement, um, <laughs> I get I get a lot of those emails, um, and yeah, we we typically we we typically are extremely conservative, and we don't move out unless there's really solid evidence of effectiveness, um, and that not only effectiveness, but that um, that there's no other concerns, that there's no 
concerns of, of risks of excess amounts, um, because as you know, especially a lot of the nuanced vitamins and supplements um, can have very high levels of certain nutrients. And again, we don't have the kind of population that we can afford to find out that, oops, there was too much of something in there um, and shouldn't have done that. Or oops, in certain individuals, they don't respond well to this. So, yeah, we, we take a very slow, conservative approach. Yeah, that, that would not be ideal, especially if an individual is on their way to Mars. I think that's, what, a thousand days? And that, yeah, mm-hmm. I, I could think that that would be definitely an issue. As it relates to vitamin D status, do you see changes in immunity? Have you looked at uh, immune function when you're dropping individuals off in Alaska or uh, looking at periods of time where they're not, they have no sun exposure for six months. What are some of the changes that you see? And then how did you get to the current recommendation that you are at for the astronauts? One of the, we did two studies in Antarctica this was a little over 10 years ago now. Oh, sorry. Antarctica, not Alaska. That's okay. I, I knew what you meant. Oh, they both began um, Okay. So we did two studies in Antarctica, and one of them was in collaboration with our colleagues in the immune lab. And one of the things that we found was an interactive relationship between vitamin D status and stress and viral reactivation. And more simply put, what we found is that individuals that had lower vitamin D status, that had higher stress markers, were more likely to reactivate latent viruses. And that, you know, is fits very well with our understanding of nutrition and vitamin D and immune system function. And again, we published that paper, I think, back in 2011. And when the pandemic started, we actually looked back at those data and published a, a an editorial paper in, I think it was July of 2020, positing that based on our data, it was plausible to think that the reason some people had a much harder course of infection of COVID might be interrelated with those data, that vitamin D status and stress might help explain why some people had a much harder course than other people that did not. And that was, again, in the first months of the pandemic. And I think at this point, there's a lot of papers out there where people have looked at nutritional status and vitamin D status and shown that indeed those are contributing factors to to infection in general um, and, and COVID infection in specifics. Special thank you to First Form for sponsoring this episode of the show. Head on over to firstform.com slash Lion, and you can see they have a whole host of products, whether it's vitamin D that you're looking for, whether it's a post-workout recovery protein, a meal replacement, or maybe some amazing spandex for training. First Form really has it all. We talked a lot about fruits and vegetables. Many of us don't get enough. OptiGreens is a great substitute. If you are not eating a ton of vegetables, you can get OptiGreens 50 or OptiReds 50. This combination pack has a whole bunch of superfoods and phytonutrients and lycopenes and all the things that Dr. Scott was talking about. So if you're interested in optimizing your health and wellness, 
head on over to firstform.com slash Dr. Lion. That's firstform.com slash Dr. Lion. And you will see they are just killing it with amazing reviews and great customer service. When you spend $75 or more, you will get free shipping. Thank you to Inside Tracker for sponsoring this episode of the show. Measuring blood work is really, really critical. Whether you are an astronaut or you are an earthbound human, people age at different speeds. There are things that impact your health and wellness, whether it is diet, nutrition, sleep, or exercise, or lack thereof. It's really important to know if you have not checked your blood work in a minute, which I know a bunch of you have not, it's time to do it. Head on over to insidetracker.com slash Dr. Lion. That's insidetracker.com slash Dr. Lion. You will get 20% off for the entire store, which is pretty amazing and generous. Inside Tracker has really made some amazing strides. They've added a new biomarker. They added ApoB. They recently added insulin. These are very important biomarkers for aging, and you now have access to it. So for a limited time only, you'll get 20% off the entire Inside Tracker store. Head on over to insidetracker.com slash Dr. Lion. And I use this service myself. It is very easy to use. They have a great app. They're very communicative on email and a really amazing company. So if you haven't done your blood work, it's time. And then is there a particular dose of vitamin D or do you just go with the, the standard recommendation? We, um, when we started flying cruise to space station, we knew that we needed vitamin D. So we were providing 400 IU supplements. And after a few years, when we started looking at the data, we realized that a lot of, a lot of cruise vitamin D status was dropping after flight. And at that point, we took the simple approach of we were flying 400 IU tablets and we said, look, take two. Um, when we started to do some of the work in Antarctica, we looked at, at 400 IU, we looked at 1,000, we looked at 2,000. And what we found was that there really was no difference in the response. There was a slightly faster reaction to a higher dose of vitamin D, but that after about a month or two, they all got to the same point and leveled off. So, so when we then started to look at the results of crews that were taking 800 IUs on orbit, their vitamin D levels were good when they started and they stayed there during flight. So we, we firmly believe that about 800 IUs um, plus a little bit in the diet is plenty to maintain vitamin D levels at what most people consider to be optimal vitamin D. It's interesting to see the, the crossover between what is valuable on Earth, what is valuable in, in space, and I suppose that that's because human beings are human beings. Was there anything that was just so surprising to you, just changes within the astronaut from um, Earth to space that you didn't expect, that perhaps that their needs were much greater or, again, different? For example, um, satiation being able to eat to capacity. That's probably different in space flight than it is when you're 
eating on a, a gravity-based planet. Indeed. And the, well, a couple things there. One, we did some studies a ways back documenting that energy expenditure is the same during flight as it is on Earth. Or if it's not the same, it's higher, depending how much they exercise. So the common, the, the immediate assumption is that you go into spaceflight, you're not walking around to the same, <coughs> excuse me, to the same degree. You're not working to the same degree, so you probably need fewer calories. And the, the reality was that's not the case. That for reasons we don't fully understand, your body's burning the same number of calories as it did on Earth. And to that end, you need to consume the same number of calories to maintain body mass. And historically, we've seen a lot of crews lose weight during flight. And when we meet with astronauts before flight, I always tell them that if I can only tell you one thing, it's that you need to eat enough, you need to get enough calories, and you need to maintain your weight. That if you're losing weight during space flight, you're losing more bone than you need to, you're losing more muscle than you need to, your cardiovascular system doesn't like it, your oxidative stress goes up, and this is not the place to lose weight. And we've seen a lot of crew members that we said, look, you're not eating enough, you need to eat more. And they said, look, I, I'm eating until I'm full, I'm fine. Um, and we said, look, you know, if you, if you look at your body mass, it's going down. So there's something not right. I don't have data to back it up, but what I think is happening is that satiety signals are different during flight and that food settles in your stomach differently and that, in essence, your stomach tells your brain that you're full before you are. And we encourage crews all the time that you need to, you know, we have an iPad app up there that they're using to track their intake and they, the crews have really responded well to that. And they enter the food as they're eating it. So at lunchtime, they can see where they are relative to their energy requirements. And they know how much more they need to eat at dinner to round out that day. And I tell them all the time, you know, either you need to, you need to push more food in at meals, you need to snack more. It doesn't matter. But job one is to get those calories out. Do you find that the microbiome of the crews resemble each other if it's something that you look at? There have been a few microbiome studies during spaceflight. Um, and to, at this point, I don't think we know enough about microbiome in terms of, of acting on it, um, really on Earth or in flight. We know the microbiome is very important. We know that your diet will affect it. But we don't really know yet what to tell you to eat to make your microbiome do something that will will turn around and help your your overall health. We know things like more fruits and vegetables, more you know a, a better diet, more omega three fatty acids is will produce a, a more beneficial microbiome. Um, we haven't we haven't been able to do a study on orbit that um, that could prove that. Although we have one that, that is ongoing where we're testing, uh, providing better foods to see health outcomes, and microbiome is one of those. Um, but again, we, we don't really have that data yet. Nonetheless, we, we, we know that the microbiome is important. We know that there's reason to be concerned about that during flight. 
but um, but being able to act on that um, in a concrete way, we haven't been able to do that yet. Have you looked at omega-3 fatty acids in the brain and protection during flight? We haven't looked in relation to the brain, but we have looked at bone health. And what we showed is that crews that ate more fish lost less bone. And we actually did ground-based studies where we showed the same thing, that more omega-3 fatty acids were protective of bone in bed rest subjects. And we did cell culture studies where we took cells and put them into a microgravity type environment. And if you added omega-3 fatty acids, they would be, they would be less um, osteoclast inducing. So um, again, they would suppress the bone breakdown mechanisms in those cells. We're definitely seeing fatty acid uh, effects on skeletal muscle from preventing sarcopenia, changes in, or at least mitigating atrophy. And, you know, that is uh, very important, of course, as individuals age. Do you feel that individuals age exponentially during spaceflight? I don't know about exponentially. I know there have been a lot of people that have made the argument that when you look at the changes that we're seeing in astronauts, that they look a lot like aging. Mm-hmm. So muscle loss, bone loss, cardiovascular deterioration. Um, so I suppose you can make the argument that that spaceflight appears to be accelerated aging. Sure. Sure. I look at it another way, you know, is that a lot of our research has been done looking at, at diet and bone health and bone loss during spaceflight. And again, those changes will mimic some of the things that we see in people on Earth. And what, what to me is fascinating is that we can study astronauts that are up there for about six months and looking at either dietary changes or exercise changes, we can see things in generally very healthy people put in a very strange environment. And we see changes in bone in six months that you would see on the order of about five years on Earth. So I think of it as it's almost like time-lapse photography where you see things happening much faster. And the work that we're doing in spaceflight, even though we're trying to prevent bone loss in a relatively small population, the work that we do helps to inform the scientists on Earth that are trying to study osteoporosis in, in a much larger group of people. So again, I don't, I wouldn't go as far as to say as we're going to cure osteoporosis, but as with every other bone researcher out there, we're all contributing pieces to the science that when you step back from all those pieces of research allows you to see the picture of bone health and bone metabolism and effectors on that, that can help to ultimately mitigate disease. Do astronauts utilize osteoporosis medications prior to going into space? Is that something that you have looked at? There have been studies of of bisphosphonates in particular um, to see whether or not those would be viable countermeasures. And to a degree, the jury is still out. Um, They did help those individuals to a degree. Those studies were done at the same time that we flew a new resistive exercise device on station. 
And we had some astronauts that ate well, had good vitamin D status, and exercised really hard with the, with the resistive exercise that had the same level of bone change as people that took the drugs. So do we need to be giving everybody uh, anti-resorptive medications? I don't think so. Could anti-resorptives be an alternative if the exercise devices break or on missions where we can't have resistive exercise? Then I think that's something that needs to be considered. But one of the, you know, again, I'm a, I'm not afraid to say I'm a very biased nutritionist. And one of the issues with medications is they always have side effects. So bisphosphonates are a class of drug made for osteoporotic patients. And to give that drug to a 70-year-old woman with osteoporosis, you don't have the same concerns that you would giving that drug to a 45-year-old male that is going to have advanced bone loss for six months or a year. The implications of that drug are such that it blocks the ability to get calcium out of the bone. And what we saw in the astronauts that took those medications is in many cases, we saw low levels of calcium in the blood. And that to me causes as much concern as, as the overall picture of bone loss, because as you know, hypocalcemia comes with some significant risks. And we need to be very careful when we're giving medication to fix one thing, that we keep track of all the downstream effects that, th that they could be having. Regarding exercise, do, are, well, number one, are you involved in their exercise prescription? You're, you're probably at least aware of some of the things that they're doing because of managing their nutrition. Yes? That's correct. And, and actually, um, <coughs> excuse me, one of the things that, um, that I'm really excited about is that we, we tend to have a, a model here where, indeed, I focus on nutrition and in many ways, nothing but. And we work with a flight surgeon who is the physician taking care of each astronaut. And we provide input into what their nutrition is and the physician that talks to their, their trainers on what their exercise protocols are and all the different pieces of, of healthcare. And we, we recently started um, working on what I would call a care team approach where all of us are sitting down together to discuss individual astronauts. And, and in those cases, we're actually sitting down with the, the strength trainers and can talk to each other over what are they working on? What are they concerned about from an exercise point of view? And we can, we can, again, inform the conversation from a nutrition point of view to make sure that we're all on the same page. Because as you know, um, you can't have one without the other. That if your nutrition is not supporting your exercise, the exercise is not going to work. So it, it, we're, we're pulling all those pieces together in a way that really should be done. Um, and that's one of the things moving forward that I, I'm really excited about. That's going to be, that's going to be so great. The exercise component, you said that there's a, a new machine that individuals are using. Do you, or do they use stim suits, blood flow restriction? I mean, what are some of the ways in which an astronaut maintains healthy skeletal muscle? 
they've looked at some of those. Um, they've looked at things like blood flow restriction um, on the ground. I don't think we've, I'm not aware if we've done that uh, in flight. If we have, it's been experimental and not programmatic. Um, the, the astronauts have essentially three key exercise devices on space station. One is a treadmill, one is a cycle, uh, and the other is a, a, what we call a resistive exercise device or a, a weight machine, if you will, uh, that uses hydraulics to allow them to, to do resistive exercise. And as on Earth, the, the different types of exercise provide different benefits. So for aerobic health, the treadmill and the cycle are very beneficial. Um, for bone health, you need loading, um, which means you need resistive exercise. That is absolutely right. And we definitely see that here on Earth. What is happening with supplementation as it relates to protocols for sleep, circadian rhythm? Do, in, do astronauts use melatonin? Are there certain protocols that are put into place? Um, sleep is obviously a, a significant concern. And again, there's, there's an entire, there's a behavioral performance group that um, helps the physicians operationally. Um, and then there are, there are a number of individuals doing research to try to better understand um, circadian changes during flight, lighting issues during flight, and, and sleep. Um, and it is extremely challenging to sleep up there. Um, there's a lot of noise. There's a lot of things going on. There's a lot of um, side issues. Um, and, and indeed, the, the astronauts are getting consultation with their flight surgeons have um, a number of mechanisms that they can work with um, to, to do what they can to make sure they're getting, um, they're getting a good night's sleep. We actually just started a study working with colleagues out in California at the Ames Research Center um, to look at the relationship between the sleep data that they have and the dietary intake data that we have to see if we can link things like caffeine intake um, and some other nutrients that might be related to sleep to see if we can put some data to making dietary changes uh, to help improve sleep too. Are there other, so melatonin is not something that's utilized for sleep? Um, I don't know specifically. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, I, the short answer is I don't know, but it wouldn't surprise me if they, if they don't use melatonin, if not all the time, but occasionally. Mm. Probably but, no again, alcohol that, up there either. That's out of my right? idea. No alcohol up there from a nutritional standpoint, probably. I do know that. There's no alcohol up there. Yeah. Um, what do you feel is really exciting for the future as it relates to optimizing these astronauts? Um, not specifically to optimizing astronauts, but one of the more, um, one of the, one of the more, if not most exciting things that we've got going on literally right now is we just started what we're calling a Mars simulation study. And this is another, it's a ground analog. It's a habitat that we built. Um, it's a 1700 square foot space that was 3D printed out of cement. We put four crew members in there, um, I think 17 days ago. And they're at the very beginning of a 378 day mission where they will be confined in this Mars-like habitat. Um, there's a number of things that were um, that they're being required to do, um, including 
There's a 22-minute communication delay, as you would have on Mars. So when they want to talk to Earth, they send an email. And 22 minutes later, the people in Mission Control get it. And they will find the answer and type back the answer. And then 22 minutes later, after they hit send, they receive it in the habitat. Um, they've got mission realistic timelines. They've got logistics constraints. They're eating space food. They're doing experiments. They're growing plants. There's a 1,200 square foot sandbox with red sand next door that they will do spacewalks. They'll have to go out. They'll, there's a treadmill out there where they will have to walk to simulate traversing away from the habitat to go dig in the sand and find Martian rocks. Um, there's, again, structures they'll have to deploy, and, uh, and they'll be at this for a year. And we're looking at their performance, their behavior, their nutrition, their um, dietary intake. We're looking at things like menu fatigue, um, all the different facets of what you can do in a ground-based analog. Um, and this is a major step forward to our understanding of the end-to-end -end, um, issues of a, of a Mars-based mission. And this, to me, is one of the biggest steps forward to our ability to someday soon put people off to, on the way to Mars. That's super cool. You must just love your job thinking you are doing the job that probably there's so many people that wish they they could do that. I'm curious, how did you get to NASA? Is this something that you've always wanted to do? I Well, to, to your first point, um, it is, I have an incredible job, okay? Um, but I often say that it must be like working at Disney World that you need to realize there's a lot of hard work going on underneath those streets to make it the happiest place on earth. That it, the exciting things we do are, are very exciting. Um, it comes with an awful lot of work and an awful lot of challenges. Um, and we, you know, as I said, we just started this study. Um, we've been working towards this for about six years now. So there was an awful lot of planning and work and effort and struggling and um, trying to get this thing to come to reality. So, you know, when you step back from it, and when I give you the, the, the nutshell view of what we're doing, it's all incredible. Um, but again, there's a lot of work by a lot of people um, making this happen. Um, how did I get here? I, um, I did my bachelor's degree in biology. I had initially thought about going to med school. And when that didn't work out the first year, I decided to go spend a year in grad school and, and uh, reapply to med school and started in a graduate program in nutrition and in simple terms, fell in love with nutrition. I'd always been fascinated by physiology and understanding how the body works. And I took a nutrition and disease class my last semester as an undergrad and came to realize that nutrition is the underpinning of physiology. And when you look at things like diabetes or obesity or kidney disease, or heart disease, um, you can look at the underlying biochemistry and the underlying nutrition for those diseases and how those happen and why they happen and how you how you can work on fixing them. And after about three months of grad school, um, asked if I could switch from the master's program into the PhD program, and they were they were quite happy for that. Um, and uh, 
and I went off and got my PhD. Um, and I, you know, to be honest, I knew NASA was here. The space shuttle was flying at that time. Um, there were a lot of things going on. There was not a nutrition lab at NASA when I was in graduate school. And I went off and did a postdoc uh, with the USDA up in North Dakota and was looking for a job. And there was an ad for a position at the Johnson Space Center. And I thought, well, that'd be interesting. And sent off a CV, um, got a call for an interview. Um, and 31 and a half years later, here I am. That's tremendous. 31 years. You've worked at Johnson Space Center at NASA for 31 years. Yeah. You know You're a lot of astronauts. <laughs> you know Everybody? a lot of uh, you know a lot of astronauts. What's so amazing is that when things go well, they probably really go well, and when things don't go well, it's it's likely catastrophic from the astronauts perspective, you know. Um indeed, I, I I've been here a long time and I've seen a lot of things. Um, and yes, we, we've, I, I've seen, I've seen everything, um, from, from the, from the incredible to being able to do your experiments and, and get to fly things in space to work with some of these astronauts, which are, they're, they're simply phenomenal human beings. Um, they are human. Um, they live in our neighborhood. You know, my kid went to dance class with their kids. Um, you see them at the grocery store. Um, so they're, they're human just like us. Um, but they have incredibly uh, interesting jobs. Um, they're, they're all very bright. They're all very dedicated. Um, and, uh, and they have extremely challenging jobs. Um, and I, I've seen everything from the, you know, the amazement of, of watching crews launch, watching crews land, watching crews do our experiments in space, um, which is, which is hard to describe. Um, and on the other side, you know, when when we lost the Columbia crew back in 2003, um, that was one of our biggest moments at that time, that we had a major experiment on that flight. We had worked with that crew for, for we'd worked with that, on that flight for about four years. Um, the crew was named to that flight about two and a half years prior to launch. So we, we worked with them a, a long time. And um, and I was one of the people in Florida staring up the sky, waiting for them to come home so we could do our post-flight data collection. And uh, it, it it's it's staggering. It's just staggering. Um, and it, it, it's hard to put into words even, you know, literally 20 years later. Um, it um, It's one of those things that never leaves you. Um, it's one of those things that they they teach a lot of things in graduate school. Um, they don't teach you how to deal with something like that. Um, and I still have a lot of elements of of my work and things that I do that um, are in the backdrop that remind me constantly of their sacrifice and that what we do is a tribute to them. And uh, and I know in the wake of Columbia. Um, John Clark, um, Laura Clark's husband, spoke to our group. He worked in our division. Um, and two days after the accident, um, he talked to us and he said flat out, you've got to keep going. 
that that's what the crew would want. That's what they would demand. You've got to keep going. And I looked at that and 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 to, to this day, I use that um, to, to keep me moving forward. So again, it, it, I'm honored and, and, and amazed to have the job that I do. Um, but, but I never lose sight of the reality of, of where we are and, and the importance and the implications of what we're doing. Yeah. And a loss like that is, is definitely devastating. I can only, can only imagine. Um, my husband was former military for a decade and, uh, he experienced, uh, well, not exactly the same thing, but, but something very, very similar. Given the chance, would you go to space knowing what you know? Um, to, yes, to a degree. Um, I don't think you can go partially to space. Beg your pardon? Well, I don't think you can go I, partially to space. No, but I, I'd go for a short time. <laughs> I can handle, I, can, I might be able to handle a week or two up there like on a space shuttle mission. Um, I, I don't have the, I don't have the right stuff. Um, for a lot of reasons, I don't have the right stuff. I mean, my glasses being one of them. Um, but, um, the challenge of being away from, from friends and family for six months or a year, um, I, that, I couldn't do it. It's just not for me. There are people that thrive on that. Um, and people, people, the people that are doing this do very well at that. Um, I'm the kind of person, as soon as you tell me I can't do something, I've got to do it. So if you tell me I, I can't leave, um, it gets really challenging. So um, I leave it to the to the the brave people to go to go. But you know, would I like to be one of these people that get to go up for a couple of days and look out the window? Yeah, I'd, I'd be happy to do that. Well, I, I do know a place where you can potentially look like you're doing that. That would be the Johnson Space Center, which we love. Which I have seen some of those uh, simulations. Dr. Scott Smith, thank you so much for being on the show. Thank you for all the great work that you're doing and how, what an important role that you play really for everybody. So thank you so much. Thank you. Thanks. I appreciate your time and the opportunity to, to share a little bit of what we're doing here with you. The Dr. Gabrielle Lyon podcast and YouTube are for general information purposes only and do not constitute the practice of medicine, nursing, or other professional healthcare services, including the giving of medical advice. And no patient-doctor relationship is formed. The use of information on this podcast, YouTube, or materials linked from the podcast or YouTube is at the user's own risk. The content of this podcast is not intended to substitute for professional medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. Users should not disregard or delay in obtaining medical advice for any medical condition they may have and should seek the assistance of their healthcare professional for any such conditions. This is purely for entertainment and educational purposes only.